This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the May 30th, 1942 episode of the Morning News from the NBC Blue Network. It includes updates on the war from Belfast, Moscow, Australia, and the home front. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II radio podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, here now is your early morning world news roundup with reports from staff reporters in the news capitals of the world. First, here is John McVeigh, who reports today from somewhere in Northern Ireland. This is Belfast. In the short time since I arrived in this capital of Northern Ireland, I've seen about as many American uniforms as British uniforms in the streets. From all you hear, the American soldiers are well-liked and respected by both the Irish people and the British Army men. Officials say the American boys don't try to throw their weight around, and they seem genuinely anxious to win the liking of the people they work and live with. From well-informed sources here, you get an impression that Ulster is glad to have the Americans. Northern Ireland seems to be doing all it can in the war, considering the fact that a neutral state with influence on at least a section of the population is just next door. Some things here seem strange to the casual observer. You have the strange case of leaders of the pro-era nationalist element in Northern Ireland. They're anti-German. They believe Britain should win the war, and they quietly support the war effort. But they're afraid to be too open in their support because nationalist opinion in their era in Ulster might damn them as pro-British. Then there's the IRA, the extremists. You're told here that the IRA is a very small pro-German organization and that De Valera and the bulk of nationalist opinion on both sides of the border condemn it and fight it in every way possible. The 200-mile border between Era and Ulster is still open. There's so much commercial interchange between the two areas that a closed border isn't possible, and anyway, they'd have to literally line the border with troops. Definite evidence is said to exist that IRA agents go back and forth continually, continually between Northern and Southern Ireland. They come here, collect information about the American and British forces, and slip back into Southern Ireland to give it to agents of the German embassy. Presumably, the Axis diplomatic missions have the diplomatic privilege of keeping in t- contact with their governments. As era has be- so era has probably become the most important Axis listening post. While era stays neutral, it doesn't seem that much can be done to check the flow of information. When any IRA leaders are caught here, they're in turn. But it's not possible to get the more obscure members of the organization unless they're found in the act of committing some crime or treason. And on occasion, the IRA hasn't hesitated at using women sympathizers as links in the information service. The few Ulster people I've talked with 
warn you not to confuse the IRA with either the great bulk of the era people or with the nationalist minority in Ulster. The feeling here seems to be that even though Ulster leaders differ bitterly with De Valera on political questions, they believe that he doesn't want a German victory and that he's the bitter enemy of that tiny fraction of the Irish population who do. A strong force of British bombers last night attacked the Nome Rhone works near Paris. Docks at Cherbourg and Dieppe were bombed, and a successful attack was made on a German convoy off the Frisian Islands. Hits were made and ships were set on fire. In all, the British lost 13 bombers, six of them from the convoy attack. Four German raiders were shot down in attacks on Britain last night. The big battle is still raging in the Libyan desert, and more hard fighting is expected. Yesterday, there was fierce fighting east of the British main positions near Knightsbridge and west of Akroma. Enemy tanks succeeded in reaching the coast northwest of Akroma and shelled a coast road from the escarpment. Information doesn't trickle in very fast from units that are moving fast and fighting hard in the desert, but it's known that many enemy tanks have been destroyed. The RAF was busy all yesterday attacking enemy planes and supply columns. And this is John McVeigh in Belfast, returning you to New York. Now we bring you a direct report from the Soviet capital. Go ahead, Mr. Magadoff. This is Robert Magadoff, speaking from Moscow. There ride in an American built tank over the Russian countryside suddenly goes a long way toward making one realize the full force of the pinch behind our way to Russia. Yesterday, I was given a ride in one of the newly arrived American tanks, the fighting qualities of which are now being tested in the big battle in the Ukraine and on the central sector. Wearing the blue, blue coveralls and black helmet of a Soviet tankist, I stood in the turret of a medium tank as it rushed headlong, easily taking steep hills, riding down trees, charging across ditches, and other anti-tank obstacles. This tank is part of a full brigade, concerned exclusively of American tanks. Yesterday, it was inspected by Brigadier General Philip Feynmanville, chief of the American supply mission in Russia. These tanks are part of a large consignment of white and medium armored fortresses which recently reached the Soviet Union from the United States. Another week of training, and our Russian crews will take the tanks to the front. Several large units equipped with American-made tanks are already in action on the Eastern Front, but no reports have been received as yet on how they stood up in battle over the Russian terrain. However, the Red Army crews had only a breath of praise for the tanks. The men said that they have the fullest confidence in the machines. The tanks have shown excellent qualities on the training grounds. Goodbye from Moscow. Now for news from the Pacific Front, we take you to the newsroom in San Francisco. For news from the Pacific Front, we take you now to United Nations headquarters in Australia. This is Martin Agronsky, somewhere in Australia. Our fighters yesterday scored a considerable victory over the Jets. They intercepted a flight of 18 Jap Zeros, about 60 miles southeast of Port Moresby, and destroying five, damaged three more, 
with the loss of only one of our own planes. The Jap planes were the new type of Navy Zero, recently brought into action in the North. They provide the Jap pilots with considerably more armor plate protection than the old Zeros, being made so that the pilot sits inside a bucket-type seat, providing a four-sided protection. The fact that in addition to this new protection, the new Jap Zeros have an extraordinary rate of climb, and in the past have seemed at least as fast, if not faster, and our own pursuit planes in victory even more encouraging. It's becoming apparent now from a study of fighter combat reports that many of our fighter losses in the early days of aerial warfare, both here and in Java, were in a good part attributable to the comparative inexperience of our pilots. In modern aerial warfare, the fighter machine is so delicate and intricate a mechanism that the pilot must be able to do automatically all the innumerable details required to merely fly his ship and have his brain completely free for the fighting maneuvers and split-second decisions that mean life or death in a dogfight. Once in a conversation with Buzz Wagner, probably one of our most able and best-known fighter pilots, I asked what he thought was the most important requirement for a good fighter pilot. Wagner replied without a second's hesitation that the pilot must know his machine so well that he could put the business of flying in the back of his mind and have all his faculties free to concentrate on the business of killing. If air training at home concentrates on making our pilots at home so familiar with their planes that they can regard them as merely a fast-moving seat to carry them into battle against the enemy, they will take a useful step toward establishing American aerial supremacy. If at the same time a real endeavor is made to send to operational theaters fighter planes which outperform those of the enemy, we will have a much shorter war. Here are two more instances to illustrate the drastic need for a more intelligent and coordinated shipping control for the Southwest Pacific. First, on the British side. An analysis by the Sydney Daily Telegraph of cargo sent from England to Australia during the past months reads as follows. I quote, British freighters are dodging submarines and raiders to bring imitation jewelry, jigsaw puzzles, mechano sets, golf balls, tea towels, face powder, zipper fasteners, butcher's hooks, china flowers, metal letter files, paper party decorations, fishing rods, and writing pads to Australia, unquote. Now, second, on the American side, an American ship bringing supplies for our troops in Australia arrived here some time ago carrying no less than 70 tons, 70 tons, of the most widely advertised American soft drink. All of this soft drink arrived in individual bottles crated in heavy wooden packing cases of soft drinks to be shipped thousands of miles from the United States to Australia when we desperately need vital war supplies. Official claims at home, we must conserve every possible inch of shipping space. The best comment I can make is to repeat the remark of the American general who said of this fact, I quote, I'd like to have had that many tons of ammunition instead, unquote. This is Martin Agronsky returning you now to San Francisco. And now across the continent to Earl Godwin 
in the newsroom in Washington. And good morning, folks. Of course, you know this is Memorial Day, Decoration Day it was originally, the day on which original, originally Americans North and South lovingly decorated the graves of the Civil War dead. In this part of the world and in the East with the laurel originally, the laurel which blooms so quietly and insistently in the recesses of these eastern hills and mountains. Now the laurel's blooming again, and this time Memorial Day has a vastly greater aspect as we try to comprehend what's ahead of us in this war. And that great figure of the unknown soldier seems now to be puzzled. I died, you might imagine, he says, that there might be no more wars again on our earth. I'm an old enough reporter to remember what to me was the outstanding symbol of that occasion when the nation stood still on the slopes of Arlington and the unknown hero of the other war was laid there to rest. There was a hundred percent American there, an Indian chief, who placed a peace pipe on that tomb, a peace pipe. American Indians have been known for many things, but the tradition of their faith and adherence to their symbols certainly seems to put to shame the hordes of pale faces which have made a mockery of the world's gifts and who have brought the world to this crisis. I suppose a gentleman of the di diplomatic corps and the poobahs in the boards of directors' rooms around the world may have highly phrased reasons for the governmental changes in the econom economy and the shifts which have brought on the war, but I venture to state by this time the unknown soldier might say that the war, to war today is the thoroughly well-distilled essence of human greed. I presume that you might would like to know something about the news today, if there is any. There'll be a sample Army and Navy parade down Constitution Avenue in Washington at the end of the day, but throughout the nation the feature is not parades, but work in the munitions plants. And that work is the activity which explains the one thing that General Marshall, Chief of Staff of the Army, said at West Point yesterday. We're working so hard to equip a much larger army this year than we first planned. Marshall announced four and a half million man army in 1942, and that's a million men more than most of us realized. It must have the army equipment, and it is thrilling for Americans to know from the lips of matter-of-fact George Marshall, who never speaks without a basis for utterance, that this man's army is the best ever and is readying itself to land on Hitler's blood-stained conquest and run him and the rest of the Axis right over the cliff to the abyss of horrors prepared for just his kind. I'm thus editorializing because there are no news, to quote Horace Greeley, not a single new, to further quote one of Greeley's staff. They keep rowing and debating about gas and rubber here. You're sick of that. Bob LaFollette is trying to maneuver the Senate into accepting that $50 a month for soldiers and sailors. Meantime, the Army is being paid at 21 and 33 a month, and we come closer and closer drafting married men with dependents as the president turns down an appeal and puts a married man with a good private income, however, in the draft 1A. And farm leaders are protesting to the Secretary of Agriculture, Wicker, that government price control policies threaten to keep down many important food crops, and that's all from Washington at this time. Thank you, Mr. Godwin. Your reporters this morning have been John McVeigh from Belfast, Ireland, Robert Magadoff from Moscow, Martin Lagronsky from Australia, and Earl Godwin from our own capital. For the latest news, keep tuned to this station.
Beginning Monday, June 1st, at this same time, Morgan Beatty will be heard presenting a new feature, the Daily War Journal. This is the Blue Network. <laughs> 